0: Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of this day, for the gift of this space, for the gift of this community, and for the gift of your word that is to us life. So God, we do ask that you would open our eyes and help us to see you in new ways that you would speak to us through the beautiful truths that Isaiah holds. God, come. You call us to come to you, and we long to respond to your invitation, to hear you, to have you move in our lives and be transformed, to live as your chosen people, praising you, living into your mercy and grace, and proclaiming that to all the world. So God, we ask that your presence would be upon this time. And that you would bless this journey we are embarking on together. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You're here. We finally, we got here. <laughs> a week delayed. We are embarking on what feels like a rather ambitious study of Isaiah. Is it the longest book in the Bible? Might 66 chapters? I think it might be. Didn't check that back. Long book. Um, Isaiah opens with these words. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And so begins one of the most significant books of the Bible. A book that gives this magnificent glimpse into the redemptive work of our God. A vision of the salvation that is to come. The the name Isaiah actually means the Lord saves. And that is the theme, the thrust, the whole vision of this book, the Lord saves. And that vision is more fully revealed here in Isaiah, unlike it has ever been in the Old Testament. (laughs) Outside of the book of Psalms, Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. I think it's quoted like... 55. I meant to check that fact this morning and I forgot. I think it's like 55 or 58 times Psalms is quoted like 60 or 70. Um, Jesus references it, um, I think, eight times. And uh, in one very profound moment, um, when he begins his ministry, when he ushers himself into taking on the ministry, his public ministry, he reads from the book of Isaiah. This is a significant book in the life of the church. Not only does it reveal God's dealings with his chosen people, Israel, and in their rebellion and the ways in which God is um, working to save and redeem and call them back to himself, but it reveals God's greater plan of redemption for the whole of humanity. Here, unlike any book in the Old Testament, we get a picture of the one who is to come, right? Suffering servant, this one, that the, the person in the wilderness is preparing the way from, all these verses that speak of the one to come that is revealed in Jesus Christ, comes from this book. And it all begins here with these words: "The Lord has spoken." Um, you'll see on your tables that verse. Uh, Isaiah 1-2 is printed as table tents and we also, uh, table cards we also have um, verse cards for you, we're going to do that again this year, we're not going to call them memory verse cards not, we don't want to apply pressure this is to keep God's word before your face before you put it up when you're doing dishes or on your mirror um, these are in the back for you the Lord has spoken this is a proclamation of the truth that our God does not leave us in the dark Right, He doesn't leave us guessing. Unlike the game we just played, there was a point to that, (laughs) where we stuck something on your back and you had to, it was a game meant to stump you, to leave you kind of guessing, a puzzle to solve. Um, I couldn't figure mine out. (laughs) I had China. I got to the point where it was a country, and I asked someone, I said, it's a place, right? And they said, well, yes and no. So she was thinking of China, find China. So then that totally stumped me, and I ended up having to go beyond yes or no questions and totally getting hints, and it seemed sort of obvious, China. I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> God doesn't play games with us, friends. He doesn't. He doesn't leave us on our own to figure out what he's doing. Our God speaks. God speaks, and he speaks clearly, not like the telephone game. (laughs) We're in the end, the message is a little garbled, uh, and it's recorded, so we don't have to rely on our memory (laughs) to get it. It's recorded. God has spoken, and he's given us his word through scripture. He comes to us through scripture, through the prophets, and ultimately, through Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. That is his ultimate act of speaking. We don't have to go searching for God. He comes to us. Our God reveals himself to us. And this book of Isaiah in its opening, this, this uh, proclamation that our God has spoken is a fundamental truth of our faith, a fundamental tenet, that our God is a self-revealing God. Without God revealing himself to us, without him speaking, telling us who he is and what he's up to, we would have no clue. We couldn't figure it out. So thank God the Lord has spoken. Thank God the Lord has spoken. And here in the book of Isaiah, he's spoken through a vision. That he gives to his servant Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah is this grand vision of what God is doing in the life of Israel. And bigger than that, broader than that, encompassing the whole cosmos, is a vision of what God is doing. And now, 2,000 years after the birth and death of Jesus Christ... What he has done to restore order and wholeness and bring salvation to all humanity, to every nation. So it broadens from just the chosen people, Israel, to all of humankind. What God speaks in the book of Isaiah can be summed up into three themes. There's lots of themes, lots of things we're going to look at and uncover here. But three broad kind of categories of uh, the ways in which God speaks in this book are words of judgment, words of comfort, and words of hope. Words of judgment, words of comfort, and words of hope. And these scenes are throughout the book of Isaiah, but they also occur in three broad movements within the book itself that provides its structure and flow. And so chapters 1 through 39, you'll notice... Our words of judgment, a lot of it contains a lot of judgment to Judah and Jerusalem for their turning away from God. We even just heard it, right? Um, Come now, let us, mine says, let us argue it out. Let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. So there's sin there. And there's a reconciling God is bringing about words of judgment, conviction, pointing out the ways in which his people have strayed. And that happens within the first 39 chapters, chapters 1 through 39. And chapters 40 through 55 are words of comfort. These are that, that section in 40 through 55 are, I think, where a lot of those verses for us that are very meaningful are pulled from. Comfort, oh comfort my people. These words we sing during Advent um, of God bringing his people to a place of safety and security out of their captivity. And then chapters 56 through 66 are words of hope. This vision that God gives of this grand future where God is going to restore and bring a new Zion, a new reign for God's people in all the nations. So we're going to hear words of judgment. We're going to find places of challenge and conviction as we study this book together. And we're going to find words of comfort. Words that probably are already very meaningful for you that will sink in hopefully deeper. Some of my most favorite passages are from this book and that section, chapters 40 through 55. There are some of the most reassuring words in scripture here. And we're going to hear words of hope. Hope. We're going to be reminded again and again of God is active and still is about the work of redemption and setting things right and making all things well. So that, friends, is what lays before us this journey. And we're going to make our way through all 66 chapters of it. To help us kind of understand, because this is set in particular context, historical context, Donna is gonna come and, and help broaden our um, understanding of the context um, that this book was written in.
1: Thank you, Janice. Um, in the past, i my talk, I've talked, given talks I always, I often will explore the Context of the passage of scripture that we're in. And I liken it to my wedding ring. And uh, the context is the setting of the story. And in my wedding ring, I have this beautiful gem. It's so pretty, I love it. I've had it for a lot of years. But it doesn't, if I were to take it out of its setting, it would lose its meaning. But because it's in this setting, and my particular setting was designed. So that it has wheat shafts on the side, a scripture verse inside of it that's been inscribed, and the setting gives meaning to the stone, and the stone is a representation of the marriage, and the ring and the, set, the setting and the stone together are representations of the marriage. What, they're, what it's based on, how it's founded, all of those things, and so so the scripture for us is the stone. And the historical background that we as teachers try to explore a little bit for you is the setting that gives meaning to what we're about to tell you. So here are a couple of things. As I was looking at historical and literary context, there were so many things, but I've only got 10 minutes. So I had to mash it down to pick the stuff that really was fascinating to me. And the most fascinating thing to me was those four kings. In, uh, in the first chapter, the first verse. Those kings, Uzziah, Jotham Ahaz, and Hezekiah, these kings and their devotion to God, or lack thereof, really affected how Isaiah was treated by and listened to by his audience. Now Isaiah was a member of this royal family. He was distantly related but once you're a member, you're a member and you have access. So he had access to the kings, he had access to the priest. These are like the big dogs of their society and this is in Jerusalem and in chapter 6 he's commissioned by God as a prophet during the reign of the Judean king and it's important to remember that we're talking about Judea I mean sorry, Judah and not Israel. Israel are the ten northern tribes Isaiah is speaking to uh, Judah and from the city of Jerusalem so I want to tell you a little bit about as I was exploring I learned some things about these kings Isaiah or I'm sorry Uzziah he was a king of prosperity he was fairly godly and in the year that he died that's when Isaiah was commissioned he was an able ruler uh, Isaiah was pretty. Pop- he was not unpopular during this time. Uh, during the long reign of Uzziah, in the kingdom, of- the kingdom of Judah was stronger than it had been since Solomon died two centuries early- earlier. Both Assyria and Syria or Aram, they were weaks. They were weak nations at that time. So Judah's only rival in that region at that Uzziah's. Day was Israel, the ten northern tribes that had rejected Solomon's successor and they had formed their own nation. Uzziah's reign brought walls, towers, fortifications, a large standing army, a port for commerce on the Red Sea, increased inland trade and success in war with the Philistines and the Raians. It was good days, good times, prosperity. But hollow religion accompanied the material progress. The temple revenues grew, but so did the greed and the oppression. Uzziah himself was loyal to the Lord, but he did not enforce godliness on the people. He didn't encourage it. Um, And if you want to find out more about that, look in 2 Kings chapter 15 and in Chronicles chapter 26, 2 Chronicles. Toward the end of his reign, Judah's time of blessing ran out. And a strong king took the throne in Assyria, and he began to muster an army for conquest. When Uzziah died in 740, and this king that I'm going to mention now, he was very important and is spoken of in the book of Isaiah more than once. His name was Tiglath-Pileser, or they called him Pul, P-U-L, of Assyria, who was about to march southward. Now, the way these nations are set up, if you look on page 360 in your study guides, you'll see this picture of or the map. And so what's interesting is, and I might have this backwards, so please forgive me because uh, I think in your books, uh, Syria will be to the right, to your right. So um, here's Assyria. Then there's all these little tiny nations or kingdoms of which Israel is one, I mean, uh, Judah is one. And then over here is Egypt. So as Syria grew in power, they wanted to conquer Egypt. But to get there, they had to go through all these little nations. And their tradition, the way they ruled, was to conquer the nations, subjugate them, and those nations became their vassal nations. And they set up as they... But the real prize was not uh, Judah. It was Egypt. That's what they were going for when this was written. Um, God in, in Isaiah tells us that the power that he's... He gave the power to Assyria. He has a plan. He wants Assyria to do a job for him. He wants to down the nation of Israel, which is wild. And he talks about it like a vineyard, and he talks about it, in, which is something that was beautifully planted, did well, and then grew wild. And the fruit of it became sour and just useless. And his plan was always for this group of people to be a light to all these nations but rather than that happening all those nations affected them so that they became totally irrelevant in the region because they didn't look any different than the nations that surrounded them and you may think this is crazy but I, this makes me think of okay, keep this a secret it makes me think of J. Jill I used to love that store I did and they had the grooviest, coolest, hippest clothes And then somebody took them over. And now the clothes are just like, it took several years. It took a while. But do I go there anymore? No. Do any of us go there anymore? No. Why? Because they changed. And now their stuff looks like everybody else's stuff. It's just the same. It's become irrelevant right, to us. Oh, well, I just had to say that. (laughs) I wanted to say that for so long. Okay, so um, it's like that. All right, so then, after Uzziah died, and please look into his life, because, man, he... Well, anyway, very interesting story about him. His son, Jotham, took over, and Jotham was somewhat godly. Isaiah was a young man, and he prophesied to the king... Please cut me off, Janice. I know I'm going over. Okay? Yeah, cut me off. on you need to. And to Jerusalem, the capital, Isaiah was not popular during Jotham's reign. For the last years of, of Uzziah's reign, Uzziah was quarantined with leprosy because he had tried to take over the role of the priest in the temple, and he was struck with leprosy immediately. And his son, Jotham, was the real ruler because his father had to go into exile uh, be separated from the people. And he was personally faithful to the Lord, but he let his people worship other gods and flout the Lord's moral standards. Jotham was more concerned with greatness than ethics. And even as Tiglath-Pileser, proud I can say that, was conquering kingdoms north of Israel, Jotham was trying to prolong the time of prosperity and he financed dozens of building projects He forced the Ammonites to pay tribute. And evidently, he missed the warnings he received from the young prophet Isaiah. Still, Isaiah's social rank, the people's traditional respect for a prophet, and the Lord's protection kept Isaiah from outright persecution. So, Isaiah's still bobbing in the water. He's still up. But not for long, because the next person to succeed was Ahaz, and Ahaz was a season of folly. Isaiah was young to middle-aged, and he was suspected, at that time Isaiah was suspected of disloyalty. Ahaz succeeded his father in a time of decision, and he failed the test. The kings of Syria and Israel were aligned to resist the Assyrian onslaught, and they threatened to invade Judah unless Ahaz agreed to join them. Ahaz didn't know whether to be more terrified of Assyria or of or of Syria and Israel but he decided he was smart enough to use Assyria against his near arrivals without being squashed along with them Isaiah warned Ahaz not to seek help from Assyria and you'll read that in um, Isaiah chapter 7 verses 1 through 8 verse 22 but he's ignored so Ahaz turns to Tiglath-Pileser who obliges and helps him but he sacks and he deports Gaza, Syria, and most of Israel by 732 BC. For the favor, Tiglath-Pileser extracted a huge tribute from Judah and summoned Ahaz to pledge his loyalty. On his way to Assyria, and this gives you a big insight into Ahaz, he saw an altar in Damascus that he liked because he was an art connoisseur. So so he had plans uh, sent to Jerusalem and he set this new altar up in the Lord's temple and he sacrificed to Syrian gods on it. The old altar of the Lord he moved aside and he used that for divination. That was the Assyrian method of divine guidance by studying the entrails of their sacrificial victims. This is how bad it was. Eventually, Ahaz closed the temple and he authorized full-scale idolatry and he even burned his own sons and child sacrifice. And this is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 16 and 2 Chronicles chapter 28. So Judah had gone far, far, far away from the Lord and he was succeeded Ahaz by Hezekiah whose reign was a reign of hope. For Hezekiah was a thoroughly godly man. And Isaiah now was middle-aged to elderly. He was a trusted advisor to Hezekiah. And he was resented by his rival counselors. Hezekiah was a different character from his father Ahaz. You can hardly believe his father was Ahaz. Hezekiah was a bold patriot. He was dedicated to Judah's welfare. He also had a healthy respect for both the Lord and his prophet, who's some 15 years older than Hezekiah. That was uh, Isaiah. Isaiah was 40 when Hezekiah took the throne. Because the new king was eager to listen to Isaiah and know the Lord, Isaiah was able to influence national politics at a crucial moment. Hezekiah began by trying to stamp out idolatry in Judah. He had the temple reopened. He cleansed and cleansed of the pagan objects. He banned idolatry, and he ordered pagan worship sites to be destroyed. He even invited the tiny remnant of Israel to join, because remember, they were deported by Tiglath-Pileser already. He asked them to join them in the Passover celebration, but Israel was a lost cause. Its king rebelled against Assyria, and the new Assyrian king, Sargon, responded with a brutal siege and just took the rest of them. He deported the rest of them and he replaced them with conquered pagans from somewhere else. And that's how Samaria came to to be in, what was a mixture of this, whoever was left of the Jews and all these other people. Another crisis occurred, was when Hezekiah falls deathly ill, but because he had no son, the line of uh, succession was in danger. So Hezekiah prayed and he was spared for 15 years. And at that time, Mariolak Baladan managed to wrest Babylon from Assyrian rule. And this was the other great kingdom that Isaiah prophesies about that will come in and finish the job that Assyria starts to, to wipe out, to take these people totally out of, um, out of the region. So um, I think I've spoken enough. And uh, you'll, you'll see that Hezekiah was the last godly king of Judah and um, anyway, you're going to find that very interesting, the story of that so the, just a, two more things, why is Isaiah so important, why? because it provides us with the most comprehensive prophetic picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, it gives the full scope of his life, the announcement of his coming, his virgin birth his proclamation of the good news his sacrificial death and his return to claim his And because of these and numerous other chronological texts in Isaiah, the book stands for us as hope in the Lord, the one who saves. And Isaiah's name means the Lord saves. And the whole book is God's plan of salvation, not just for those people, but for the world. And his audience is not just those people, but the contemporary audience was Israel and the nations outside the covenant, and his modern uh, today uh, message is for the believers today and the nations of non-believers. So, tell us more about his prophecy is Carmen.
2: So my task this morning is to consider Isaiah in the context of his office as a prophet. We know that he's not the only prophet in the Bible, and so how did God speak through prophets in general? So the most basic definition of a prophet is someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit to speak God's messages. Before the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit only rested on or filled certain individuals for for roles or tasks. Uh, For instance, the Holy Spirit enabled the craftsmen to do their work for the tabernacle and for the temple with utmost excellence. The Holy Spirit enabled some to have incredible strength, like Samson. And the Holy Spirit also was present in the lives of certain kings. For instance, the Holy Spirit gave Solomon his wisdom and David his insight into worship. The Holy Spirit also chose certain men and women to be his prophetic messenger. And the first prophet the Bible refers to is actually Abraham. And I don't think I would have known that Bible trivia question before um, doing this. But the Lord um, says that Abraham is a prophet um, through Abimelech's dream while Abraham's wife, Sarah, is living in Abimelech's household. We know that Abraham lies, and um, so God has to come to Abimelech in a dream and say... Don't take this prophet's uh, woman, it's, it's his wife, and even though Abraham had lied. So, so Abraham is actually referenced as a, as a prophet, and he's God's messenger. And then Moses um, is declared as the greatest prophet, as he spoke with the Lord face to face. And then during the time of the judges, the, these leaders chosen by God also served as prophets. For instance, Deborah was considered a prophetess and um, also a judge for Israel. And then once the priestly ministry was established for the temple and the tabernacle, ideally these ministers of God's presence would serve as prophets and as spokespeople for the Lord. Um, And some of the well-known prophets that we do have in scripture were priests, such as Ezekiel. He was in the priestly line. Um, But sometimes the priestly ministry had gone astray, and so God had to raise up prophets from unlikely places to um, offer correction. And so this was the case for Amos, who was a shepherd. And sometimes the prophets were united together as a husband and wife team. Isaiah himself was married to a prophetess, and so who knows what kind of conversations they were having around the (laughs) dinner table. (laughs) And then John the Baptist is considered the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so as our study guide helped us discover, um, there were prophets who wrote, um, and we have their messages recorded in scripture. And those um, who were prophets, but their messages were not preserved in scripture, but whose ministries are simply alluded to in the course of the Bible. And so there was much more prophetic ministry that happened to Israel um, that we don't know the full content of. And so of those messages that we do have recorded in scripture, we have what's known as the minor prophets and the major prophets. And this designation is not based on importance, but only length. And so the minor prophets are those small ones at the end of your Old Testament that are hard to find. And then the major ones are the long ones. And um, you all can take a guess that Isaiah is a major prophet based on the length of the the study guide that we have before us. Um, And in Hebrew, there are at least four words for prophecy. Um, The first is nabi, and this is the general Hebrew word for prophet. And nabi means a supernatural message that bubbles up or springs forth. Another Hebrew word is roa, and this means seer. Seer are those um, who have visions or visual impressions. Um, These people can also look at something and receive a supernatural message through the image. And so um, we see an example of this in Jeremiah's message in chapter 1, verse 11. Um, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, You have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north, I answered. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Uh, Another Hebrew word is hazon, and this one means watchman. A watchman sees what is coming, and then a watchman also watches out for the word of the Lord and intercedes until it is accomplished. Um, And so this is also a role that the prophets played. Um, So you remember Elijah, um, when he spoke the word of the Lord to Ahab, that it wasn't going to rain for three and a half years. Um, So once the three and a half years was complete, Elijah interceded until he spied that rain cloud that brought um, rain. So he was doing the work of a watchman. Um, And then also we remember that... um, after they, the exile, they knew the time of the exile, Jeremiah had said, would be 70 years. And so then the prophets, you have Daniel start praying, okay, God has us returning. And so the watchman um, is interceding at, at key times as well. And the, the fourth Hebrew word is nataf. And this one means to preach or to speak by heavenly inspiration. Um, and so nataf is done from more of a pulpit or in a public's place. And it can also mean a prophetic word that is given in the form of exhortation or encouragement and then in in Greek they only give us one main word so not as on the list is prophetase and this word signifies one who speaks for God and this can um, be a message that foretells um, or a living message um, from God and uh, the prophet can interpret God's will or counsel for that time or season Um, and this prophet can also have insight into future events and so sometimes you think about, you know, we read the prophetic literature, but sometimes one of my curious questions was, is how, how did they receive their messages from God? Um, and so it was a variety of forms. Many had dreams and visions. And so uh, a dream came while they were sleeping, and a vision came while they were awake. Um, but in a vision, so their, um, their field of reference was um, mainly that's all that they saw. So they had a vision, but they weren't seeing what was also around them. Um, And so these prophetic visions were like dynamic pictures. Or today we have virtual reality. You can put on virtual reality goggles, and then that's all you see. And so in some ways, that was probably a little bit like what the the prophets saw. Um, And sometimes God gives his messengers um, pictures or impressions. For instance, I can say the word apple, and you have a picture of an apple come in your mind, but you can still see me and the the women around us. Um, And so then God also spoke directly, like with Moses, face to face. Um, Or sometimes he would give them words of knowledge about a situation, just that they would know how something was going to turn out. Um, And sometimes God even instructed his prophets to act out a message. Um, Some examples of prophetic actions include when Hosea was told to go and marry Gomer, the prostitute, to um, to show Israel how God still loved them, even though they were faithless to him. And then Jeremiah was instructed to put a yoke around his neck to demonstrate to the people of Jerusalem that their impending slavery was the result of their disobedience. And so these prophets were called to speak all that the Lord all that the Lord told them, or all that they received from the Lord. And sometimes their audience was the whole nation, um, and other times they functioned mainly in the king's court as an advisor when the king would have them. Um, for instance, Gad the seer and Nathan the prophet, were those that ministered um, to David, and you find them counseling and correcting King David, and things go a lot better um, in the lives of the king when they're listening to the prophets that God sends them. Um, and then God continues the gift of prophecy into the life of the church, but that's a whole other topic, um, but it's just fun to allude to that God, Moses had the desire that all of God's people would be prophets. And so we see this desire fulfilled in a amazing way on the day of Pentecost as Joel's prophecy comes to pass. And the Holy Spirit isn't just poured out on a a select few, but on all who put their faith in Jesus. Acts 2, verses 16 through 18 says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants, In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Um, So, and one more note about um, the gift of prophecy in general, is that I'd say there's three levels of prophetic gifting. Um, One, everyone who has the Holy Spirit um, has the capacity to prophesy, at least at the level of exhortation or encouragement. Sometimes you may not even realize you're doing this, that God gives you a message, and you just think, this person needs this word of encouragement for today, and you just go and speak it, and you're a messenger for the Lord. Um, Others have a prophetic ministry. This means they have a a level of experience of really hearing from God and seeing pictures and um, are regularly exercising it. And then even more rare is the office of a prophet. And we see these three levels happening in both the Old and the New Testaments. Um, Saul, who was to become king in the Old Testament, when touched by the Holy Spirit while in the midst of prophets, started prophesying, but we know that he was not considered a prophet. And then in the New Testament, there are many who prophesy, but you don't often hear of the title of prophet, but there are some. For instance, in Acts chapter 21, verses 9 through 10, the Apostle Paul is describing his visit to Philip. Um, And it says, Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And so the four unmarried daughters had a prophetic ministry, but Agabus walked in the office of a prophet. Um, So there's a lot more that can be said about that, but today we just want to give thanks to God um, for the prophetic ministry that he entrusted to Isaiah, and that in every time and season, God reveals himself and makes his plans known.
0: that's been helpful as we begin our study. Um, A word about the study itself, just as we close. Um, Don't be intimidated by the size of it. Both the book of Isaiah, which is long, and the study guide itself, which is large. We're taking a whole year for this. A year in women's Bible study speak schedule. Um, there There will be larger sections to digest, But do what you can and stay with what speaks to you. If you get off, just jump back in with where we're at. Don't let perfectionism, this is something that I struggle with, completing every lesson fully and completely. These are not assignments. (laughs) Um, Don't let that get you down or get you off. This is not the easiest book to cover, Isaiah. It's complex as Donna helped us see, there's lots of people in play with strange names we can't say. (laughs) There are events that are, we just, this is not our world. It's it's foreign in a lot of ways. The language can be strange to us. Don't let that discourage you. Stay with it. Stay with what speaks to you. Reach out if you feel lost. Ask questions. There's a reason we do this study together. Right? Why we're coming here each week your time in your small group is crucial it is crucial for us to process this to understand what's being said to begin to uncover the ways in which God is speaking to us individually Um, so share your thoughts and questions there don't be shy this year we have the gift of mixed ages and stages which is wonderful because we have vast life experience and Bible knowledge to draw from so take advantage of that Uh, Our hope as teachers is that we can help unpack some of the richness of this book that takes a little bit more digging, and that's our job. Um, But we're not going to fully master this book. Do we ever fully master scripture? No. But we do hope to grow in our understanding and love of this book. So having said all that, we encourage you to throw yourself into this study as much as you can. I've been struck recently um, with the thought that spiritual maturity and growth doesn't just happen. I wish it did. I really do. It's just like wanting to be stronger and more fit. Like, it just doesn't happen. It takes thoughtful and prayerful intentionality and commitment And isn't that why we're all here, right? Because we are going to probably stick with this study better if we're in a group and we're doing it together to grow in God's and to grow in understanding of God's word. And so we're committing together to journey for eight months um, until April, beginning of May. Um, Our hope is that you come, whether you have done your study or not. Please come. Please come. Whether you've opened the pages of this book or even read the passages that we're on, this is a place of grace where we know that even if you haven't done anything during the week, you're going to learn something if you just come. So please, please come, um, regardless of how much you've been able to engage the study. We all hold many things in our lives, all of us, right? And so we never want anyone to feel bad or Worse, decide not to come because they haven't done the study. But it is also true that we're going to learn more and grow more and take more in if we make time and space for this study. Um, In a devotional I have, um, I recently read this quote by someone, or this thought, it's unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. There will be a need for some intentional commitment And some reorganization in our lives. But there is nothing, nothing that will enrich our lives more than a deeper and clear perception of God's presence in the routine of daily living. And what else gives us a sense of God's presence than his word and being in it daily? So... My prayer is that we can get into a routine in our daily living of being present to God through His Word. So, as we begin this study today, or you know, by the weekend, think about your week, the spaces that you have, or the spaces that you might need to make um, to engage this study well. Set aside a time and place. Put it on your calendar if that helps. Um, Light a candle. Make a cup of hot coffee or tea. Make it special, right? Carve out this cozy, sacred space. Do you want to go there? I am desperate for my Bible study time because it's just this little cocoon space that I've created for myself if I can get it. Um, It's harder with lots of children, but there's lots of things that pull at us, right? And so um, my prayer is that we can together try to create a rhythm in our life of engaging God's word in the study of Isaiah. That's the opportunity before us. The study is laid out um, weekly with um, studies for five days. Um, and hopefully you can use that structure to help you engage in that rhythm. If you get thrown off, don't worry. If you, know, if you feel like you're getting bogged down because you're behind, just go back on the day that we're supposed to be. Um, or just, even the questions. If you read a question, you're like, I have no idea. What well, Then move on. Just move on. Trust that God is going to speak to you where He needs to through this word and, through His word and through this study. I don't feel like you have to answer every question. I didn't even in the introduction. Um, if you find it helpful, ask a friend or someone in your group to help hold you accountable just in encouragement. I know that I'm more apt to do something or show up if I know someone else is expecting me there or they're going to ask me about it. So use the gift that we have in community of asking someone to say, how's it going?" Are there any questions at all about the study? I know we're over time. If you have questions, feel free to ask the teachers or small group leaders. Um, I want to read one thing from the study. This is Kathleen Nielsen. Um, I don't think it's just the the English teacher in me that leads me to the conclusion that our basic problem in Bible study these days we've forgotten how to read. We're so used to fast food that we think we should be able to drive by scripture periodically and pick up some easily digestible truth that someone else has wrapped up neatly for us. We've disowned the process of careful reading, observing the words, seeing the shape of the book and passage, asking questions that take us into the text rather than away from it, and digging into the word and letting it through such a process, guided by the Spirit, remember you have the Spirit with you, friends. The Word of God truly feeds our souls. Here is my prayer, that by means of these studies, people would further, be further enabled to read Scripture profitably and thereby find life and nourishment in them. I want to close with reading um, one section of Psalm 81, verse 10. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. That's what we're doing. Like baby birds, or I have this picture of a hippo. Right? That's our posture. Open your mouth wide, and God promises to fill it. Friends, we have a chance to open wide.